Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Adapia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, our guest is Brian Fox. Brian is the VP of Strategic Partnerships at Thomson Reuters and the founder of Confirmation.com, the trusted global provider of digital confirmations that sold in 2019 to Thomson Reuters. Brian is recognized as the creator of electronic confirmations and holds several patents on electronic audit confirmations. Brian is an industry thought leader and frequent speaker on accounting and fraud issues. He's been named four times as one of the top 100 most influential people in accounting, is a five-time winner of the accounting profession's top 40 under 40 CPA in America, and was named as Entrepreneur of the Year in Nashville. Prior to confirmation, Brian began his career in audit for Ernst & Young LLP and in mergers and acquisitions for PricewaterhouseCoopers. He's also one of the founders and a board member of Rivio.com. He also serves as a mentor in the Inc. 500 Military Entrepreneurs Mentor Program, the Jumpstart Foundry, and the Nashville Entrepreneurship Center, and is on the advisory board for the Nashville Capital Network. Brian is also a member of the AICPA and the Tennessee Society of CPAs. Brian's entrepreneurial journey has been lifelong, with his grandparents consistently illustrating the power and importance of investing, encouraging the family to work toward financial freedom through sound investment decisions, particularly in real estate. Brian tells us about the challenges, both personal and professional, that he faced when starting his business. And what really shines through is the persistence in keeping with it through the ups and downs, especially the downturns, and really sticking with it for 19 years before he eventually sold it to Thomson Reuters in 2019. We talk about the various inflection points that were the most influential in the development of confirmation. And throughout our wide-ranging conversation, we touch on Brian's decision-making as a business leader, how he plans and prepares for retirement, and of course, his personal definition of wealth. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, good morning. It's thank a you. Real, yeah, it's a real pleasure and an honor to, to have you on the podcast. You're a very special and very important part of Alpha Investing as one of our early backers and, and investors. And you have this incredible story that we're really excited to dive into and all of your experience and your advice as it relates to being an entrepreneur and also a really interesting uh, background that you have in real estate and how we all tie that together. So it should be a really fun episode. And um you know, really honored to have you. Well, great. I'm glad to be here. Great. So let's, you know, let's get started. Why don't you tell us your story and, you know, don't hold back. Don't cut it short. It's such an incredible story. So we'd love to hear that. Sure. And, and you know, ask questions, take me down any path you want. It's certainly a fun story, a huge part of my life. So, you know, just as, as background, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, grew up here, went to SMU for college. And took accounting. As actually, my intent uh, was to take be a finance major, but I knew I wanted to start my own business at some point in time. And so I had talked to a lot of entrepreneurs along the way, just interviewing them, which I recommend anybody uh, go out and do and, and ask them about their business and how they got started. And one of the questions I always ask is, "Well, what would you have done different?" And uh, just about all of them said that one of the things they do different is they would have taken more accounting classes. Because uh, accounting really is the foreign language of business. You know, in, in any country in the world, the numbers are what are consistent. And in, 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 even here in the U.S., if you can't read your financial statement, you're going to rely on an interpreter. And the, the, the interpretation is only as good as the interpreter. Right. Uh, and they may or may not be wanting to tell you the truth. And so I said, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I was never really good at foreign languages, but I was always pretty good at math and, and numbers. And so I, I understood that. And so I, I woke up kind of one day and I was closer to an accounting degree at SMU than a finance degree. And I said, well, you know, I'll just get the accounting degree. That'll set me apart a little bit for everybody who's doing uh, finance. 
And then I said, well, what do you do with that? And he said, we'll go work for a big firm, you know, big six at the time. And so I came down to me between uh, Arthur Anderson, uh, who was the best, you know, biggest firm in the world, and uh, Ernst & Young. And a friend of mine had said, who was at Anderson, said, you know, it's a, it's a meat grinder. They, they beat you. And if you can, you know, run the gamut, then, you know, you can make partner at some point. Now, that long, you know, my intent is not to try and make partner in the county firm. I want to uh, do this for a period of time and go back to business school. And so uh, I went to work for Ernst & Young, which was a, a great choice for me and, and ultimately for my career, because we all know what happened to Anderson not too long afterwards. But I ended up, while I was there in the mid-90s at, at Ernst & Young, doing audit, um, got my CPA, so I'm a CPA, and saw that we were transitioning as a firm from paper uh, work papers to electronic work papers, which made sense in the mid-90s, and uh, with the exception of something called confirmations. Uh, anything that touched a third party, we really continued to do the, the old way we were done for 100 years. And you know, the first year, I was happy to staple, copy, fax, you know, go get the supplies for the for the audit room, whatever they told me to do. You know, my grandmother, she'd call me and, and she'd say, you know, how's it going? And I'd say, this is really not difficult. It's kind of mind-numbingly boring. And she'd say, well, you know, as long as they're paying your paycheck, you show up and work harder than the boy in the, you know, with the girl that's next to you and put a smile on your face. And so that's what I did. So that, that first year, I was, you know, whatever they asked me to do, you know, and the second year, I was looking forward to learning a few more things, having somebody else do all the grunt work. And uh, my largest client, our intern got pulled because we were short staffed. Staff one got pulled, and there I was, the staff two, and I was I was uh, effectively the low man on the totem pole again, a low cost employee. So I had to do all the grunt work again, which involved confirmations. And that year, I, I said, you know, this is you know my senior on the job, guy named Sal Fear. I said, you know, tag your at Brian. I hate it, but, but you got to do this again. And I was like, Sal, man, you got to be kidding me. These are terrible. You know, you're, you're licking stamps, you're stuffing envelopes, you're folding paper, you're chasing, you know, the mail, making phone calls, trying to get banks and customers to send these things back to you. And, and uh, he said, I know, but you got to do it. And that year, while I was not very happy on the job, I, I was much more efficient, which I reminded him at my, my review that year, because uh, he did note that my attitude wasn't as good as it probably was the year before. But, you know, when I was doing it, I, I remember standing over a fax machine, waiting for a confirmation from Wells Fargo to come back to tell me what the client's account balance was at Wells Fargo. And it was, you know, typically I'd send the first request in the mail, second request in the mail, things had gone wrong, the bank probably, you know, threw it away, responded with incorrect information, whatever happened. And we needed it back and I was standing over the fax machine and I thought to myself, you know, this is crazy. At the end of the day, you know, I've been taught that I had to control the process. If I left, went, got a cup of coffee, somebody, the customer picked it up off the fax machine and handed it to me, I quote, would have lost control and would have had to call Wells Fargo back and ask me to get it back. I thought to myself, this is silly. I've been standing up trying to do my work, you know, with papers in my arms, my laptop, and said at the end of the day, I just simply asked the customer for the fax number and for the, you know, for the phone number. I never validated the fax number. I mean, I never validated the phone number. In fact, I never validated any of the mailing addresses that we sent any hundreds of confirmations to. And I said, I could commit fraud on Ernst Young. And I said, this is a silly process, but these people are smarter. I've only been in accounting for two years. They've, they've been doing this for hundreds of years, so, you know, listen to them. And ended up, I wanted to go, I wanted to get some finance background before I went back to business school. So I went over to PricewaterhouseCoopers, joined the mergers and acquisitions team. And uh, that was a lot more fun. I enjoyed the M&A side. It was, uh, yeah, it was bored and going. And, but I did get pulled on some audits because we were short-staffed in the PwC office and they needed some, some audit work done. And so I was a senior at that point. My staff had to do confirmations and it was a funny audit. We cobbled together a team from the M&A team to try and do this one company's three-year audit because they were getting acquired. And my staff had never done audit before. And they said, this is the craziest thing. This is stupid that anybody's actually doing this. I can't believe that you know people are you know having to chase mail, lick envelopes and, and stuff, you know, paper. And I said, yeah, I know, but you got to do it. And I realized that PwC had the same problem as you know, that I could commit fraud on, on another large firm. And uh, that idea stuck with me. I went back to business school at Vanderbilt, came home. That was my intent. Only applied to Bandy. Was going to figure out apply until I more him enough to get in. Fortunately, I got in that first year, and uh, was working on a in my entrepreneurship class. Jermaine Bear was my professor, and, and had to write a business plan. And I wrote a business plan that said, "Hey, this thing that I think is broken and inefficient, and a hundred years old process. I think we could solve this with this new technology called the internet, because this was in 1999, and the internet was just about three years old. What wasn't too old? And, and at that point, you know, I said." We could use this, this technology to create a secure clearinghouse where 
we can take what was a four, six, or eight-week process into a near real-time process and really eliminate those loopholes and, and hopefully catch fraud and eliminate the opportunity for fraud to occur. And the fraud that occurs is anytime you see a company where they've inflated their revenue or where they've stolen enough cash to effectively put the business out of business, those two frauds typically have happened because the company manipulated the auditor's confirmation procedures. And so, you know, when you hear of the, the frauds, you look at HealthSouth, right? HealthSouth had 400 million of fake revenue. That was because they faked the, the cash account. So, you know, not to get too technical, but essentially if you've got revenue in your company, I come in, I can't touch your revenue. Like there's nothing I can actually touch. I can't say, you know, show me your revenue. But what I can do is I can confirm with the bank that the cash is there or with your customers that the receivable is valid. So if I can verify the items on the balance sheet, I can I can certify that the revenue number on the income statement is also valid at that point. Right. So that's that's essentially how we do that. And it's really as simple and a hundred year old process to mail those letters to customers and banks, verify information that the bank statement's correct or that the receivables are, are valid and the payables on the customer side. But it's a very simple process to manipulate. So that was the technology, that was the idea, that was the aha moment. And my professor, Jermaine, had been an accountant, fortunately for me, and he was like, hey, I, I understand that problem um, that you're trying to solve. Makes sense. Why don't you do it? And I said, I don't, I don't have any money, so I'm going to go work for a, a startup, .com at the time. Again, this was 99 and uh, going into 2000, summer of 2000. And uh, I had interviewed uh, with some start startups and .com projects. And unfortunately, my father was killed in an accident toward the end of my first year of business school. And so I had talked to my mom and my brother, and we used my dad's life insurance policy to as the seed capital for the business. And so that was how I was able to even have the money to start the business. And so I did that as my internship where most of my uh, classmates were getting you know, pretty well-paid internships. I was I founded Confirmation.com in, in June of 2000. And that was really how, how it started. I used my classmates that next year, our second year of business school. We were in marketing class or technology class to help write the marketing plans, the technology plan or whatever. You know, They said, well, might as well use your idea since it's a real one instead of making one up. And uh, so I really appreciated all the help way and, and I graduated and uh, the funny thing is for entrepreneurs you know life happens real life happens at the same time you're starting a business there's never a, a right time a good time to start a business really my wife and I we found you know, we, we were our, our first child was born a week before graduate school she my wife was going back to graduate school as well get her uh, master's in early childhood special education and at Vandy and, and we had our first child the, the week before the, the Graduate school started, and the week of graduation, we found out we were expecting our, our second. And uh, so that summer, you know, hit the ground running. I was all fired up, had my MBA, CPA idea, little cash in the bank. So I hit the ground running, but we needed to uh, really at that point raise a, an outside round of funding. The internet bubble had just burst, but I was like, you know, that's okay. You know, I'm still going to go forward with this. Got a good idea. So I was, we were out there. I had a, a Three other people. We were trying to raise money, a million dollar round of financing. We had that pretty much locked in. We we had a lead investor, which is always the hardest investor to find. Uh, we had a lot of people who were going to round it out. So the lead investor was going to take the, you know, they priced the deal. They, they were going to lead the investment. And we had the follow on investment. We just needed to pitch the, uh, the investment committee. And uh, so we, we pitched the investment committee that night. We went to a little conference room. They came in. One of the folks said, Hey, everything looked great. You did a great job. We've got an issue with a portfolio company. You guys go on home, we'll call you tomorrow. Well done. And they called us the next morning. That was about 10 o'clock in the morning. They said, hey, you know, that that company, that portfolio company, we ended up talking to the, throughout the evening. We're going to have to fire the CEO, get a new CEO. If we went to 1 in the morning, we didn't get a chance to vote. We're going to vote at next week's meeting. Well, the, the day we pitched was September 7th. The day they called us was September 8th. And as you may remember, three days later, 9-11 happened. So they never had that next week's meeting. And the entire global financial world just took a significant hit. And, you know, companies that had revenue, if you weren't cash flow positive, you weren't getting any follow-up financing, and we were free revenue. And so here I was. I had a business, a dot-com. I was you know, 26. You, you had two kids under the age of two, one-and-a-half-year-old and, and a newborn on the way. We'd actually adopted my wife's half-brother, who was 14, at that point in time that summer. And uh, so life was a little crazy for us. And, you know, the, the internet bubble had burst and then 9-11 happened. And so that was a crazy time to start a business. And I tell entrepreneurs today, you know, I, I get where you are and trying to start a business, right? We all expected 
the, the, the economy has been on a great bull run for the last 10 years, and I expected it to take a downturn, you know, after the presidential elections, regardless of it. It was just a natural time and cycle. But just like, you know, we've, we've seen a little bit of that happen, you know, they had an unexpected event in, in the COVID crisis, just like we had 9-11. So that, that put everybody in the tailspin there. And so, you know, very similar type situation, different than the 2009 to 10 dip in the economy because there wasn't a global crisis other than the global real estate crisis that kind of caused the market correction. So that was the start. So I moved the business into my grandmother's garage. Uh, there was three of us. I ran up the credit card debt, right? Deferred my $92,000 of student loans from Vandy. You know, we were living on a shoestring. My mom was helping pay our bills. My, my wife was having to go to our in-laws to pay our rent every month. And uh, we were trying to make do and, and uh, paid everybody in stock. Everybody pretty much ate their expenses. The one thing we did pay, we, we lived on... on from a business standpoint, we lived on a small budget, about $10,000 total a month. We had to had to pay uh, $5,000 a month for an outsourced company to, to build our technology. $2,500 a month uh, was what our health insurance, we always paid health insurance. So we, we paid that 100%. So we paid health insurance for everybody because people are sick and you can't come to work, you, you can't run your business. And then we had about $2,500 to figure out at the end of the month who we were actually going to pay the minimums. We had to pay the minimums on the credit cards that wouldn't shut it off. We had to pay the cable companies that wouldn't shut off our internet. Uh, and, and, you know, every now and then we had to, you know, pay the attorneys, the accounts or somebody a little bit, a, a token, just let them know we were still alive. And so we did that for about two years. We, we really lived on 30 to 45 day budgets at max, you know, did all the entrepreneurial stuff. I always tell everybody, you know, I would go to pitch meetings and the tops of my shoes always were shined, but the bottoms of my shoes, every pair had, had holes in them. I would often go into investor meetings with wet socks in the wintertime that were cold feet because I'd stepped in a puddle. And uh, you know, I couldn't cross my legs because my shoes had holes in the bottom, but the you know, tops were polished. I'd read an article in Unique Magazine that said if it touches a customer, make it, you know, it needs to feel like an A, but otherwise it doesn't need to. So uh, you had to figure out where to spend the money. I remember one time my wife had to come downtown and uh, get me uh, out of a parking garage because we didn't have any money in our account and I didn't have the $10 to get out of the parking garage. And, uh, you know, so it was some lean times. Tough times, but you know we we were able about two years later to get some outside financing. We did that in the form of debt from some angel investors along the way. You know, with aunts, uncles, cousins, college roommates, high school friends, and their parents, anybody that we could get a get five hundred dollars or a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand dollars from, you know, help us kind of get to another point in time. And we finally, you know, we had good things happen in the business, even though the financial markets were very tight from the investing standpoint, but. We, we were able to raise a $750,000 debt round with warrants attached from angel investors about two years later. And that gave us the ability to have really years worth of capital for the first time and uh, to do some planning. And so the, the business continued to grow. We ended up then, at that point in time, we needed to internalize our technology team because we needed more resources and the business that, that had been helping us, a great business, but they weren't an outsourced development shop per se. They actually had their own business. They were just, you know, had built hours on the side because they also were starting up and needed capital. And so um, I'd given them some stock and they needed their resources because their business was doing well. And so we raised a $3 million round of, of funding. We did a $400,000 bridge loan from the original 750. And then we raised a $3 million round of financing, the third A round that, that actually uh, allowed us to internalize the technology team. And so that gave us our, our technology team. Continue to grow. We were doing well a couple years later. Or really about that time, it was one of the kind of the hallmarks was, you know, I'd been telling people about how easy it was to commit financial fraud. And in December of 2003, a company in Italy or in Europe from Italy called Parmalat, the, the Italian dairy company, you may see their, you know, their boxes of milk products and things on the shelves, Parmalat. It's still the world's largest confirmation fraud. So they faked a $5 billion cash account at Bank of America. And they'd gone out, they'd been lending, or they'd been getting money, borrowing money on the open market. They had a stock price and everything. And they borrowed several billion dollars, strong balance sheet with really $4.9 billion of cash in it. And toward the end of December that year, their, their creditors were like, you know, this doesn't make any sense. You're not making your, your debt payments. You've got plenty of cash. We just, we don't understand what's going on. And uh, finally, the pressure was too much. And they issued a press release, put it on their website that basically one page that said, sorry, we lied that account never existed never had. And uh, the stock price dropped 97% over the next two weeks, and the, the debt holders got pennies on the dollar. They had to go into bankruptcy, restructure, but it was a $5 billion account that, that didn't exist. 
And uh, that that put us on the, the map. The New York Times, we were on the, the front page of the business section saying we could have caught this. Our technology, this is what I can tell people about. And, and then uh, even though I've been telling the large firms about it, uh, each of the big four firms at the time uh, called me in the first two weeks of January that year and said, hey, that, that fraud service you've been talking about, could you come up to New York and, and tell us about it? And that began their use and, and pilot of the service. So we, we continued to grow. We then raised a $5 million growth capital that we thought would take us to cash flow positive. We raised that in 2006. That did. That took us to cash flow positive in 2009. And we were growing. We had a lot of top 10 banks, a lot of accounting firms using us. And kind of one of the, the pivotal points was Bank of America was the bank where Parmalat had pretended they had the bank account, but they never even had an account. So but Bank of America's name got dragged through the mud. And so in 2008, Bank of America said, look, we're, we're never going to do that again. Uh, we don't want to jeopardize our name and reputation because somebody just picks us out of a hat. And so they said, we're going to mandate the use of confirmation.com service. And so they did that. And uh, it was a crazy time. They mandated it as of October of, of 2008. And at that time, we had about 220-ish accounting firms using us, all good size. And a lot of the top 100 users would be focused on the people with the volume. But we only had about 10 people in the company at the time. And at that point, they said they were going to mandate us. And we went from having about 220 accounting firms October 1st to about five months later, we had 4,500 accounting firms globally using us at that point. So it was a watershed moment for us. And we we brought on additional staff. We grew. In 2009 was when we were supposed to hit cash flow positive. We did. Uh, And that year, the market was was doing pretty bad. But we we hit cash flow positive. We were actually number 96 on the 8,500 that year. So that was a pretty cool year for us. We paid off our debt with interest, which was about a million four. So we paid that back. So we were debt free, cash flow positive. And really, in all honesty, we looked at, we said, my partner, Chris Shellhorn and I, you know, I was the largest shareholder, Chris was second largest. We said that we were going to look to have a liquidity event once we get cash flow positive. And so we looked around in 2010 and uh, the market was pretty dismal. A lot of friends, other CEOs were, were taking 50% haircuts on their valuations because they had to had to raise money because they weren't cash flow positive. And it wasn't it was it was a buyer's market, it wasn't a seller's market. So we we said thanks, but no thanks. So for the next couple of years, we actually paid significant dividends to all the shareholders, which was nice. And and we continued to grow. And so you know we we were international at that point. We had users outside the US. We ended up um, buying a company in London which allowed us to have our first office outside of of the U.S. Um, And we continued to expand and and grow. And then we said, okay, you know, what's what's kind of the next trigger? And we said, well, you know, when we get on that $20 million run rate, you kind of get an extra one in the multiple category. So we said that would be a a nice time to to look at liquidity, right? Because all my business school classmates that went to places like Goldman and Merrill Lynch's, they would call and be like, look, my asset allocation sucks. It's, It's in two assets. It's my house. In this business, and, and there's not a lot of diversification, and you know, really everything I've got is in one bit, one stock. Right. And I realized that that's not what you'd recommend, but I don't have any other way to do it. And so that was kind of funny. But so you know, when when we saw that we were about a year and a half away from twenty million dollars, we hired FT Partners, uh, Steve McLaughlin and his team, which was awesome, and said, you know, here's what we want to do: we want to liquidity that we'll sell the business uh, when we get twenty million, and, and you know be prepared when we do that. And so as we went through that preparation, we had a lot of dinners and lunches with, with Steve. And, and Steve said, well, look, guys, you, you guys love the business. We said, yeah. He said, you guys are having a lot of fun. We said, yeah. He said, you guys have significant growth opportunity and your cash flow positive. We said, well, yeah. He said, well, why do you want to sell? Well, because we want some liquidity. We've been in this thing for a while. And, uh, you know, I got bills to pay. <laughs> I still need to pay on my student loans. And, you know, I'm out there rolling the dice, right? I'm putting it on red and black every single day. And I could lose everything. And uh, he said, well, have you thought about other options? And he said, uh, you know, said well, what? And he said, well, how about debt? We said, nope, been there, done that, don't owe anybody. Plus, I don't think we could leverage the business enough that we could have a, an event that would allow me uh, enough of a nest egg that if the whole thing went to zero, I was okay. And so he said, how about, how about a, you know, an, an investor who comes in and you know, buys majority stake? And we said, you know, well, that would achieve the, the, the current opportunity it's not 100 percent, and then somebody's going to own you know own the business but control 40 percent of our current equity stake and we said if, if you want to want to own us buy us but we didn't want to, to lose control of the business right the ability to make decisions around the business the way you have 
And then he said, well, how about a minority investor? And said, well, I, I, I don't think you could get a minority investor who's going to give us a, a liquidity event that, that would you know, essentially give me the ability to retire. And he said, well, what if I could? And he said, well, if you pull that rabbit out of my hat, Steve, you, you, we're in. And he said, well, I think I can. And so we ran a, a PE only, not, no strategic. And sure enough, um, we ended up, we had actually three or four uh, private equity firms that it came down to. And we picked, picked a great one. Great Hill Partners is who we went with and, and love those guys. And so we did a, a $60 million recap, really primarily all for secondary capital, which was great. And we put a little bit of money on, on the balance sheet, about $5 million on the balance sheet, just to put it on there because the rest of the Great Hill Partners said well, some of the cash needs to go to the balance sheet. Uh, but we actually never touched it. And uh, But we had a six-year time frame that we talked and negotiated with them before they could you know, force a transaction because of the fund's life cycle. But... About a year in, we had, we, at that point, we were operating in you know, well over 150 or so countries. And at, at that point, about a year in, we had one of the large strategics that we talked to over the years come in, start to talk to us. And ultimately, one day, they invited us to New York and told us that they wanted to buy us. And uh, so we're not for sale. You know, we, we just took $60 million. We had a private equity firm. We got five more years left. We, we just now put, in, you know, we hadn't even seen the leverage of the investments of, of the new staff and the new offices that we've opened. Um, they said, no, we want to buy you. Um, so we did a little bit of a dance because they said, well, how much do you want to sell for? And I was like, well, it's like real estate. You knocked on my door. I didn't knock on your door. So how much do you want to pay? <laughs> you know, I like the house I'm living in. Yeah. You want it. You got to give me an offer. Then we played this dance and I knew they were serious. So we went to the board. We said, look, let's hire an investment banker. Run process. So we, we hired William Blair out of Chicago again. Dan Dahl and his team were excellent. And and we ran a, a strategic zone, no PE process at that point. And interestingly enough, even though it was Walters Fleur who had come and, and wanted to buy us, it was ended up being Thompson Reuters, the largest competitor, who ended up buying us. And so we ended up selling the business two years after the, the, the private equity round that we did. And we sold 100%. Uh, all cash and, and everybody got out. So uh, it was a it was a fantastic transaction for everybody. You know, some of the cool stats, uh, we had over 60 people who made a million dollars or more. All four of us uh, that were in my grandmother's garage, the, the coolest thing I can say about the transaction, really one of the things that, that led me to want to go ahead and do it, really two things, but, but one of them was the fact that the four of us that were in my grandmother's garage that were there we start, when we started it, were there the day 19 years later when we sold it. And, and you don't see that a lot in entrepreneurial businesses. Um, a lot of times the, the founders, the, the early folks, you know, they scatter and they get upset, but, you know, we, we did, you know, 19 years later, we had two, two Chris, my partner, Chris and Jeanette Hauser, who was the first person I ever hired. They were going to retire last December anyway. And so, you know, we, we were able to sell the business last summer. So they were on for about six months with transition and uh, then Dave Malone. And so he and I are still in the business, but we sold it last summer. And, uh, you know, everybody in the garage made over $10 million. So that was kind of cool. So we had, we, it, was, it was a fantastic deal. The private equity firm, they made, uh, I think, over 2.75 times their money. So that's a pretty good return in two years. And uh, again, they, they were great. But, but to their credit, the week before we were going to sign, they said to Chris and I, they said, look, if you guys don't want to sell, we're in this. We love the business. We love the management team. We're behind you. We think it's a great opportunity. But you know, the fact that we, that I could sell the business with Chris and Jeanette still there before they retired. And also, as I said earlier, I, I thought and expected that the, given the 10 year bull run that we had, that regardless of, of who won the presidential election, right, left, or in, in the middle, that we were due for a significant correction that, that may take two or three years to come out of. And there's operational risk, right? So and you make money when you can buy on the downside. So if I could have cash sitting on the side that I could invest when the market turns, you can ride it back up on the other side. Whereas I, I have talked to some, some friends and you, know, you go back to a couple of the different downturns and then they didn't sell a business. And when the market turned, even though the revenues grew, when they ultimately sold a few years later, the multiples were lower and, and they ended up selling for the same valuation three or four years later that they could have sold for before the downturn, but they took all that additional operating risk on for, for those years and, and headaches. So, you know, fortunately for us, I think it was great timing. So that's, you know, that's kind of the story. You know, what an incredible story, Brian. I, I love hearing it. And it's not just about the successes. It's all of the inflection points along the way where, you know, really things could have gone in any direction. But, you know, because of kind of your resilience and your work effort and, and whatnot, you were able to kind of move things where you needed to, to, to go. And, you know, I think what I find most interesting is that 
almost all working professionals at some point in their careers were kind of sitting in the same shoes that, that you were, right? Which is, you know, I'm showing up to work every day. I'm doing something. It, it's not particularly efficient, but it's just like the way it goes. And it's how the industry operates. And over the course of time, you know, you get promoted, you advance, and eventually those issues just aren't your problem anymore. And, and you kind of stop thinking about them. And so what I'm wondering is just, you know, your mindset, like what got you to the point where you said, hey, I'm actually going to do something about this problem. And just how did you get there? Great question. I, I grew up with the lemonade stands on the corner. You know, I, I grew up, I, I started, a friend of mine and I, we started a driveway sealing company for a couple of years out of high school and in college. I parked cars, worked at Abercrombie & Fitch during college. So I, I was always doing something. And my family was very entrepreneurial minded. So my grandparents uh, always invested in real estate. And so I, every time we had an extra $5, they'd let us invest in any, any deal they were doing. My grandfather and my dad were had, construction businesses, just building residential homes. My mom, who was actually uh, the first job out of college, she was uh, one of the first six female police officers for Metro Nashville before they had women on the force. And then she became an attorney and then uh, became a real estate agent. I saw her with with real estate. My dad was was building, kind of owning their own businesses. And so that was kind of in the blood. My grandmother, when my grandfather died, she ended up starting a dress shop. So she gave me these stories about having credit, having to knock on people's doors to, to get them to pay and inventory and all sorts of things. And I used to run around her dress shop. You know, and my, my other grandmother started Sarah's Candy and I used to work work the cash register there. She had a candy shop, which is actually the candy shop uh, was behind their house. And that was where we ended up starting confirmation.com. And uh, she used to pay me in chunks of caramel. And uh, so I'd work the cash register and I'd leave at the end of the day with a big chunk of caramel. So you know, it was always kind of in my blood. And, and you know, the frustration I, I had, you know, I, I love the Ernst Young, I love the people, I love the, the firm at the PwC as well. But I remember in my start class, it was about 42 of us. And there was, you know, in, in order, you know, typically the pass rate on the CPA exam is 8%. Well, there was four of us out of the 42 that passed the CPA exam that first shot. And then, you know, just, just like any business, you know, at, at the time we were kind of hoteling in terms of where we sat. And everybody knew if you walked around and sat on the main floor on a, on a Friday afternoon, you're likely to pick up weekend work. But, but I was there to learn because I knew I had my objective, my next step was to go to business school. And so I was trying to learn and gather that in. And so at, at the end of the day, when we got promoted to senior right there before I left Ernst Young, there was four of us that all 42 of us got promoted to senior and four of us got an extra thousand dollars in our, in our raise. And, you know, I'm an accountant, so I'm decent with math. So, you know, a thousand bucks over the course of a year is less than a hundred dollars a month after taxes. It's like an extra fifty dollars a month for for all of that extra work and, and effort uh, was that was our total reward. And I said, you know, I'm not just going to sit around here and, and move up the, the food chain with just because of, of how long I've been here. You know, I I was more entrepreneurial minded. I wanted to start something. I wanted to make a difference, but I also wanted um, to to see that my what I put in had the ability to change the outcome uh, versus just based on time. And so that was, that was really why, you know, some of the reasons, you know, I had a very strong entrepreneurial background and mindset and, you know, I didn't want to climb that, that corporate ladder based on just time. And so uh, that was why I ended up starting my own business. And throughout all of your, your time in business, I mean, what's really striking is that you, you really stuck with it for, you know, for those, those 19 years. And, you know, when, you know, at the end of your story, and you're saying it was 19 years. It's it's impressive because we get these ideas that entrepreneurship is. Uh, I'm going to be successful next year if I start something <laughs> this year. You know, and just like anything, right? Anything that we we go to build, like even if it's investing in real estate, like oh, what's my quarterly return? And you know, there's so much to be said about the patience and the persistence and the resilience and, and the like strategic timing as well. Like you, you really spoke to that a lot. And, you know, I don't know if you could speak to that a little bit, like sticking with it for 19 years, like you said, not everybody does founders scatter, but you stuck Mm -hmm. with it for all of those years. Like, what would you say to people who might have this idea that like wealth comes in, you know, windfalls and, you know, like, like that, like, what would you say to that? 
we, we all hear those stories, right, the, of Twitter and the 10 employees, and they've been at it like three months, and they got bought for a billion dollars, right? I mean, we, we hear the stories. And, and certainly, the fact that you know, you're an entrepreneur means you're, you're an optimist by, by nature. I mean, you, you think you can do anything and tackle anything, and that, you know, even the things that people tell you you can't do, you're determined to show them that you can, right? And, and I'll tell you that, you know, it's, it's funny. I look back at the business school plan that I, I wrote in, in business school at Vanderbilt, and I still don't think I've achieved our five-year revenue target. You know, and I thought for sure this was like a layup, right? I mean, the dot-com you know, era was going. I was going to start this thing within five years, three to five years. I'd sell it and be a millionaire, and I'd, I'd move on to the next one, do it again. And, uh, you know, that just didn't happen at that, that, that pace. So it is funny to look back and read that old business book. You know, I'm a little embarrassed by about how, how optimistic I was about how he, because it was such a no-brainer of an idea, right? And the funny thing is, People come up and tell, tell me, no, that's a no-brainer. Wow, I wish I'd started that. But, you know, what's different about our business, not every business, but the two things. One, it was a network model, which is really probably one of the toughest models to build because you have to have both sides, right? I'm not just selling a chair to a consumer, right? It's me and the consumer. In this case, I've got to sell both sides of the transaction, right? So you think of eBay, right? E- eBay is a tough model because if I want to go buy a chair, but nobody's selling a chair, eBay doesn't get a, a transaction, and if I want to sell a chair and nobody's buying a chair, there's still no transaction. And so you have to have critical mass on both sides and there's value to both sides. And what's interesting, if you look back at, at the history of the internet, what was going on in some of the competition, right? eBay started, they were really the first big auction site and Yahoo came along second. They had more money at the time before they blew it all and could never figure out their business model, but they had more money. But what happened was because they were second to market in a network model, if you wanted to buy a chair, you went to eBay. You didn't go to Yahoo's auction site because there wasn't anybody there selling anything. And if you wanted to sell something, you didn't list it on Yahoo's site because everybody was buying it on, on eBay's site. So Yahoo ended up canceling and throwing away their, their, their auction site. No different than you know Facebook. Facebook got there first and, and Google came along second, tried to copy the model, but they couldn't get enough critical mass on, on kind of both sides. You know? And so that's a tough model to build where you have to have simultaneous value for both sides. And, and that was a significant trench for us in, in terms of competition. And, and when we sold, we actually operated in 174 countries. We had over 16,000 accounting firms, 5,000 banks, 6,000 accounting firms. The Federal Reserve was a user. Uh, we had really all the top 10 banks. I think we had 97 of the top 10 banks in the United States. And, and uh, you know, so that, that was a tremendous network that we had built. But it was it was hard. When you build something new, that's, that's also extremely hard because it had never been done before. It wasn't like when I used to go out and I'd have CPA firms say, well, so you're going to email my companies. No, we're not emailing. It's like a network. It's, it's online. But remember, the internet was three years old, four years old most at that point in time. So we were explaining how internet works and security and all those things. It was extremely difficult. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm dealing with CPA firms and banks who by nature are pretty conservative people. So it, it wasn't the, the easy, aha, this no-brainer, right? I had to convince both sides. And, and you had to start small, right? I had to start with one bank and one accounting firm in Nashville. And that grew to a couple of banks and a couple of county firms in Nashville, then Middle Tennessee, then Tennessee, then Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama, then the Southeast, then the U.S., and then international. And you know, when we saw we had offices in 15 countries around the world. And, you know, really, I, I never even assumed that we would be international in my business plan. I just thought we'd be a, a U.S. only, that there was certainly a global market, but you know, we'd be sold well before we ever uh, tapped into that marketplace. But, but it was fun. You know, it, was, it, it was a lot of fun along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really, like you said, building that network model. We have that a little bit at, at Alpha, right? Cause we're looking for the sponsors mm-hmm. and we're vetting their deals and then bringing them to our network of, um, of investors, like at a different scale than, than confirmation. But I would love to pivot a little bit into the investing side and your philosophy on investing and in real estate. Like actually my first question is, you know, those $5 that you would get to invest in your, like your family syndications, like how did those do? That's actually my first question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, what my grandparents did is, is uh, my grandmother got remarried before I was born. I was the oldest grandchild. And, and so the, the person that I know as my grandfather all my life, he worked at a bank. He's got an awesome story too. He, he started enlisted in World War II as a, as a private, he and his brother. And when he retired from the military, he was a one-star general. And you don't see that a lot. And, and his advice to me was always what helped him move up was volunteer for every opportunity that comes along. And so, you know, that, that was part of my philosophy was always volunteer and take the job nobody else wants and do, and do a better job than was expected. And that'll, that'll get you 
you know, some recognition along the way. And he ended up going into banking as well. And so, you know, they, after their retirement, they started to invest in real estate. My grandmother ended up selling her dress shop. My grandfather retired from, from banking and they, they would travel a lot, but they would drive and they would stop at restaurants and, you know, they'd be a restaurant that they had never seen or eaten at. And they said, well, that's pretty cool. And my grandma always tells the story of the first one, the Waffle House. And she, she asked the waitress, she said, well, who owns you? Said, you know, Waffle House. And they, through a conversation, she said, well, who signs your checks? And they, you know, the waitress gave her the name. And my grandmother just called them and said, hey, if, if you're interested, you know, we'd love to, you know, invest in, in, in land and building. And so ultimately, they ended up doing a lot of triple net leases uh, for restaurants whether it was Captain D's, Bonanza, Waffle House, IHOP, and, and others. And so that was really, in, you know, they travel around and you know, my grandma always says, you're going to get a lot of no's, but it only takes one yes. And they just, if they found a restaurant they liked eating at, they'd pick up the phone and call them. You know, Backyard Burgers, which started out of Memphis, that was how they found them. And you know, they let the, the restaurant pick the location, but they buy the, the land and, and build the building and then triple that lease. And, you know, that was really their cash flow. My, my grandparents even really traveled a lot. Or they had a bumper sticker that said happiness is a positive cash flow. So that was kind of funny. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so they were they were always doing those type of real estate deals. And my, my aunts and uncles and you know, cousins, we could always, if we had $10 or $5 spare, we could, we could go in on the deals that they put together. So that was that was really what got me into the real estate investing, along with my, my grandmother had always told the story. She, she had an older sister. And their mother died when my grandmother was 12. And so my great-grandfather raised them, the two girls, and he taught them business. And he owned a, a manufacturing plant and he taught them business. And he bought them each a, a duplex and they were required to go and you know, make sure the grass was cut, get the rent paid and all those kind of things. And uh, so my grandmother did that for my brother and I. So when I was about 16 and my brother was 13, the, the market had, had taken a dive in the, the late 80s there, the real estate market. And so we went in and she had talked to several banks and said, if you have some duplexes that you want to sell, you know, we're, we're in the market. And so we ended up, we bought a, a piece of property that had three duplexes on it for about $150,000 total. Um, and my brother and I still own those three duplexes today. And we've refinanced them, I think, at least twice. Each of the duplexes is now worth, you know, probably $250,000. And, and so, you know, that was how she taught it. We'd go there, we'd cut the grass and trim the hedges and deal with the renters and, you know all of those kind of things. So she was just trying to teach us what had been taught to her. And that was how, you know, between the, the triple net leases with the restaurants and then the duplexes that we were managing, uh, yeah, that was really what, what got us into the real estate investment. And today, uh, my brother does that. He, he and I invest in uh, duplexes and smaller complexes and he manages those. He actually, it's funny, he actually out of, out of college, he followed my mom's footsteps. He became a police officer for a while. And I would tell everybody that I started confirmation.com to also help the good guys catch the bad guys. And we, you know, we put a lot of people in jail over the years. We bought billions of dollars of financial fraud over the last 20 years. Uh, we're even an episode of American Greed, which is kind of fun. But, you know, we kind of, they, they were in law enforcement and, and you know, confirmation.com helped, helped catch fraudsters. And so uh, it's been, been a, a great, great deal, but we have enjoyed doing the real estate investing on the side. Right, right. Wow. That's your, I was going to say your grandma was really precocious. Very. Uh, <laughs> if you knew her. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, well, and you know, then, then you, yeah, then you take my mom, right? And she was, just, I mean, she, she, when she went into the police force, she graduated from Vanderbilt. There was no women on the police force. And uh, so what they did was because the bad guys didn't realize there were women on the police force, they put her in, in undercover. So she worked vice. She was vice squad. And so she went in, she would go in, buy the drugs, do all those kind of things, be on stakeouts. And yeah, so just, just crazy. <laughs> Wow. Well, it's really, I mean, it's really inspiring. I mean, you're surrounded by people that are of a certain mindset, which is so important, right? To be surrounded by people who push you to, to grow, push you to do better, push you in, in so many ways. And, and to have that, I think it's also very fortunate, you know, to, to, to be surrounded by that and to, to come from that, which probably explains your resilience and, you, you know, what you've been able to accomplish with, with your, with your real estate investing. I'm just kind of curious when you were building for all those years, confirmation.com, you know, and, and, you know, for many years you weren't paying yourself and then you were, but you still had debt. You know, we all know student loan debt is like still like a big, big problem. Like, I wonder how did you, how did you think through or strategically invest or did you invest 
in all of these years or, or were you sort of waiting for the big payday? Like, how did you approach that? It, really the, the way I did that, it, it, if at all with my grandmother, typically would loan me the money to, to invest in those. And so then I would pay her back through the income stream Got it. Uh, uh, of that if there was an opportunity to, to put some in on some real estate. Because again, she felt that that was an opportunity for to to build up net worth mm-hmm. um, that you know allowed you to have passive income. And, and, you know, one of the things I've always kind of said is that you're not really wealthy until you can make money either at the beach or while you're sleeping. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're working by the hour or by your labors. So, you know, real estate gives you that freedom, that opportunity to uh, to have passive income, uh, even though there's active times when you got to do it for sure. But, you know, I, I saw the, the benefit of their investments and their ability to have a lifestyle of traveling and, hey, you know, doing things that they wanted to do late in life. Um, yeah. supplemented by their real estate investments. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. That's great. No, that's really good to know. Cause I know for a lot of people in our network and, you know, there's sometimes this idea of when I have money, then I will X, right? When, when if this, then that, but you know, you've, it, I think it's really important to find a way to, to, you know, almost like the dollar cost averaging that we hear about index funds and everything, but like to find a way to start building that, that passive income, it sounds. Yeah. She, you know, my, my, my grandparents always said this, which was you know, never spend the principal, you know, use the interest yeah. and yeah, you know, they'd always pay off their debt as, as fast as possible and then use that to either refinance or to, uh, you know, and, and use that refinance money to invest in other properties. So it's just, you know, you, you got to start small, but it continues to grow and has significant growth capabilities as you grow. And then as long as you're just using the interest that you're earning, uh, and not spending the principal, you can build up a significant network. And you know, my business partner Chris, um, you know, who's my youngest daughter's godfather, even you know, he always says and, and tells people and would tell our staff that when they got a raise, they lived without the raise. You know, whatever they had the year before, they lived on. And so, if you get a raise, take half of it and put it in the savings, right. because you know, even the the other half is more than you had last year. And if you do that and max out your retirement accounts, your four hundred one k's, your IRAs, those kind of things. You know, you have the ability to, to also invest in yourself and build up, you know, significant financial network in that respect over a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. That's great advice. Well, Brian, I think the the last question, and you, you kind of touched on it. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited to hear what you say about this is, you know, what does wealth mean to you? Like, how would you define wealth for yourself and how do you approach it? And, you know, what does wealth mean to you? Yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about that question. I've been asked that question before in, in a, a book. Actually, it's, it's an audio book that I listen to. I love audio books. But the, the original Napoleon Hill book, Think and Grow Rich, right? I, I, I listened to it when I was in high school. I, the, the title was catchy, right? Think and Grow Rich. And there's a twist in it. And it, it, really, the twist is that, that, that wealth, riches are, are not monetary. They are the relationships you have. They're the experiences that you have in a lifetime. They're what you do with your life. Right. That's that's really the real definition of how have you had a rich, wealthy you know, life. And so that that was kind of the twist of his book, Thinking for Rich. And I love his his the original book because there's actually outtakes of Napoleon Hill talking and to hear the passion in his voice. And, and there is a narrator for, for most of the world, but he, he pops in with, with uh, you know, pieces of it. And to hear his stories about talking to Henry Ford and, and those kind of things is just amazing stories. But but really, you know, wealth and Rich are the relationships that you make, the experiences that you have with those, those folks. And, and so to me, it's it's that opportunity, right? And, and as I look at and want to look back, and the, the things that I remember most are the, the trips that we went on with families, you know, the, the activities that we've done. It, it's not the things that we buy necessarily. Those all actually, you know, you might, this part of Chris always calls it the companion theory. If you buy something, there's always things, right? You buy a car, it's got to have oil changes and maintenance, right? You, but there's always the companion theory, the things you don't think of when you're spending money. But the experiences are what you, you sit around and you talk about later, right? It's the things that you've done with people. And so to me, that's that's one of the things that I invest in, whether it's experiences with my family, my kids, my friends. You know, to me, that's the, the real pleasure in life is the ability to, to do those types of activities. Yeah. 
Yeah, wonderful. Well, now I have to go get the original audiobook of Thinking Grow yeah. Rich. I have the, you know, I have the book, but that's that's great. And it's a classic, if for good reason, clearly. Yeah. And, you know, I think like a lot of people, we, we kind of come back to that. I heard something explained this way, which was we're not looking for abundance in terms of money. We're looking for a form of freedom that having that money can can offer. And so, you know, it's like, oh, I think I want money, but no, I, I don't want money. I want the freedom. I want the experiences. I want the yeah. time, right? The time to be with the people that I care about. And so it's really beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Brian, thanks so much for being on the podcast. This has been really fascinating. Your story is incredible. You're like one of the first fintech companies, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I came into the fintech space late, like 2013, but you're definitely one of the early fintechs. And, you know, thank you also for being such an incredible partner to Alpha Investing and believing in us and backing us. It really means a lot to have, you know, to, to have your support. No, it's, it's, it's been great. You know, when I, when I look at investments, you know, look at, at, at people, uh, purpose, and, and profits. You know, you don't necessarily have to be profitable, but I think for me, there's a there needs to be a path to profitability. There's some companies out there that work a lot that still have to figure out their path to profitability, or if there's one, that's fine. But I feel like you're playing hot potato. But, but you know, I, I really believe in y'all's business model. I invested in the business. I've invested in several of the, the actual real estate investments, and, and then the fund as well. And and you know. The team's great. Enjoyed working with you guys. So uh, thanks for all you guys do. Keep keep it up. Uh, yep. and, and also thanks for the opportunity to be on the podcast today. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really our pleasure. So again, thank you and we'll we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Bye. Thanks everybody. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.